Harassment is absolutely everywhere. And that was really, really hard for me. There's a lot of really powerful people in politics. And there's a lot of really powerless people and a lot of people who want to work in politics. And the field of electoral campaign workers is really, really small. So you just deal with a lot of stuff and there's no centralized HR. So harassers just continue from campaign to campaign. In fact, they climb the ladder because they're almost always white men. So sexual harassment is in the top three of, of issues that people have on campaigns. This is Surviving Elections, a mini-series on Healing Justice podcast. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and we're focusing on the 2018 midterm elections and the intersections of electoral politics, social movements, and well-being and sustainability all month long. Today, we are talking about worker power. Campaign Workers Guild, or CWG, is a national independent labor union representing non-management workers on electoral and issue-based campaigns. Vice President Meg Riley joins us to talk about why transforming the working conditions of political campaigns is necessary, how building worker power impacts strategy and what's possible, and gives us a play-by-play of where to start if you want to unionize your workplace. I didn't want to do this episode alone because the experience of unionization is one of moving together. And that is just what we did on the Cynthia Nixon campaign here in New York when we unionized our campaign workforce. Shout out to all the incredible organizers, collective bargaining team members, and stewards who drove that process as a team. So to talk about it here, I called up my friend and fellow organizer, Shaniqua Charles, to help me out. Here's our conversation. Good morning, Shaniqua. Good morning, Kate. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm I'm feeling particularly grateful this morning that we met uh, working on Cynthia Nixon's campaign. Um, and you know, we're talking on the phone, even though we're both in New York City, because I'm here in Central Brooklyn. And uh, where are you this morning? So I'm in the Bronx this morning the boogie down. (laughs) And you really did incredible organizing up there um, during our campaign with big canvases and Black women leadership and really did just an awesome job. Yes, yes. So thank you for that. Um, The working on working on the Cynthia Nixon campaign um, as an organizer, uh, as a grassroots issue based organizer was it was revealing about a lot of different truths about, you know, our people and marginalized folks and how when the spirit of something that swells from the ground up can move people just really made it impactful to be able to work on. So I'm grateful for that experience totally. And so we went through together this experience of unionizing, which is what today's episode is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never been a member of a union or certainly been part of the initiation of a union before, had you? Um, well, no, not the initiation. I have been a member of 1199 Union um, when I worked for Albert Einstein College of Medicine some years back, so uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. And so we went through this process together 
it took about a month uh, from top to bottom to get things in place, to win our contract. Um, and I'm just curious, what was powerful for you about that experience? I think the most powerful thing about the experience of going through actually setting up a union is it was testing the waters of how much folks truly, when organized, can win at different points of intersectionality. So, you know, the fact that our group was, you know, based on um, political folks and organizer folks and, um, you know, um, a management team, right? Uh, it was it was remarkable to see the spirit of folks who came together to say, hey, these are some things that I think would lend greater to our mission, right? And the mission at that point was running a campaign. Um, so I think that was one of the most invigorating part processes, uh, being able to see that. And, you know, whether there were pitfalls or challenges, like nothing operates without a challenge. And so going through that process, I think was, um, it was eye-opening and it was rewarding. Um, and, and it obviously gave me tools. Or I feel like I walked away from that experience um, still being a steward, actually, of the union that we were able to put in place, but walked away with tools that I didn't have previously. Um, <laughs> and so being able to share those tools with other folks uh, was really impactful. Yeah, I'm thinking about some of the tools I feel like I learned around um, particularly like ad- advocacy around reimbursements or equal wages, um, you know, like severance being paid, like just like checking up on and, and having accountability mechanisms for resources moving. Um, I know one of the things you and I did on uh, multiple times was like be able to uh, copy each other and the union on different interactions that we were having with management to make sure that uh, checks came through, right? Like particularly mm-hmm. after the campaign, because in campaigns, it's like the day after the election, the campaign dissolves. And so it can right. be really hard to get follow through on things just on a structural level because of the nature of that, right? So um yeah, I know I learned a lot in terms of a toolbox of like, oh, realizing that when you loop the right people and you're clearly organized in a way that interactions with management are clearly understood as like a collective interaction, not an individual, um, things get handled on a different level, right? And so are, are there other tools that you feel like you learned specifically? The other tool I would say that really got sharpened and honed in on was how to create a space of sheer love and expectation of some turbulence in order to make it to the other side. Um, and I know that's like a broader scope. It's not one specific thing, but it's something that is transferable to any topic, any arena. Um, you know, and so, yeah, when I talk about what what we did and how we were able to engage with GWG to make that happen, people are really astonished that in their mind, it only took a month, right? These are people, you know, mm-hmm. just maybe from different fields or different backgrounds that don't understand perhaps that we had a very short timeline. So for us, a month really felt like a year just based on the, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like just based on yes. the, the time span in which we knew we had a culminating date. 
when folks organize this way for, you know, um, work in general, there is no culminating date. So you got folks that are on the job five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is, you know, it's ongoing. Um, so I think that also to highlight that if you can prepare yourself for a turbulent situation heading in, then I think it gives you the stamina because it was draining. Um, some pieces of it was hurtful. Some pieces of it, you know, felt like, well, what, what, what? you know, um, but mm-hmm. then, right. But then to measure the reward of um, so many people benefiting, you know, from, um, from anything like pay inequity or, uh, you know, uh, days off or, you know, structured lunch breaks. People don't necessarily realize that locals aren't into managing or leading or heading or organizing a, a campaign of this magnitude is that it beats up the body. So being able to put mechanisms in place where you can extend the body and then therefore be that much greater at the end of it is priceless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the mm-hmm. turbulence was mm-hmm. worth it because the reward at the end of the day was so great. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you said a month felt like a year because <laughs> it it did. Um, and also, you know, the clock was racing, right? Like it's we started this process less than two months before Election Day. Mm-hmm. Um, and at many points, there was sort of a question of like, is this even worth it? Like this isn't going to last that long, right? And so I know... I felt like great responsibility at some point when it started getting later into negotiations and we were almost done having a contract of really hearing from CWG the importance of setting a precedent Yeah. of like, yeah, maybe maybe this formulation of this campaign only continues for another month, but campaigns continue and we all as human beings continue in this work. And so- how can we treat this experience even though like this this job has an end date, this work doesn't have an end date? And so that was a big motivator to me. And and also just figuring out like how does this apply to people who aren't working on political campaigns? I mean, you and I both spend most of our time in issue-based campaign land. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was excited to learn that Campaign Workers Guild is actually supporting issue-based campaigns to unionize now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're supporting like nonprofits that do C3 or C4 work. They're supporting political advocacy groups and kind of campaign adjacent firms like digital media firms for political campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's exciting to me to imagine like this conversation, this possibility of unionized staff is not only for political campaigns, but also for many of the nonprofits and issue campaigns that we, you know, spend our time working with. So given that, I'm curious if you think there's anything like that folks who are working on campaigns like that have to learn from this process or what would you encourage them to do? Um, that, I mean, that, that, that's, such, uh, that's such an amazing question because, um, you know, just sidebar, my I have a I have an eight year old daughter, which most people know because she's very active as well. Mm-hmm. And so when I introduce her, I often say my eight year thirty two year old and not in like you know, a sassy fresh way, but in a way that highlights the fact that um 
being able to put into her notions that will serve her grandchildren as a, as a mother, right? Um, what that impact looks like across her life, which I'll obviously be able to track as long as I have breath in my body. And so that direct correlation to how you just highlighted um, the frustrations at some point being, man, is this really worth it? But knowing intrinsically that, hell yeah, it's really worth it because if we are who we say we are, our duty is to put as many tools in that toolkit for future campaign workers, for future organizations that, you know, need to have their workers and their staff, you know, protected and uplifted, right? Um, I know I've said the word protected like once or twice during this conversation, but I don't want that to lend itself to the connotation of something being negative. Just the same way we put on a coat when we go out in the cold, um, you know, it's a layer of protection. It protects us from freezing and possibly catching a cold. So, you know, not to say that implementation of union is always an indicator that something is drastically wrong where folks are unionizing, but just saying, hey, I recognize the potential to have greater impact if these structures are in place. Um, And so much like pouring into this eight-year-old kid of mine, you know, I felt the same level of responsibility with making sure and seeing it through to fruition that our union was in place and that people were getting the supports that they needed to actually do the job to the best of their ability and have semblance of, you know, a self-caring life um, in addition to that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I like the jacket and the cold analogy because one thing that we won that is that is a core tenet of all of um, Campaign Workers Guild's contracts is a clear process and protection around sexual harassment and harassment in general, mm-hmm. like a clear grievance mm-hmm. procedure. And mm-hmm. we actually, luckily, were able to move forward in a way that we never had to use those things. Um, right. <laughs> but of course, every organization should have a policy around grievances and reporting sexual harassment, right? So some of those wins are things that you want to have in place because you care about justice and support and righting what's wrong before something like that happens. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's part of why this feels really important to me too. Yeah. And it also serves as a deterrent for those things to happen as well. You know, it it removes a layer of vulnerability um, Mm -hmm. for folks who are like, just straightforward, just trying to do their job mm-hmm. <laughs> and exist in the world at the same time. So yeah. that's right. Yeah, very important. Yeah. I just I just want to add that I think something really magical took place. I mean, quite literally, um, I'm around like thousands and thousands and thousands of people during the course of any given year particularly these last few years, um, you know, as it relates to the increased work that I'm doing in criminal justice reform and those spaces, um, with work being led by, you know, those most impacted by the system, you know, and those of us who are systems impacted leading the work. And so I just want to thank you um, first and foremost because being being in a in that in that particular space and organizing on this campaign, 
you know, even aside from the union work, I think you and I clicked like minute one, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the spirit energy that's like, wow, the spirit is very familiar. And then over the course of time, we kind of figured out why that was and, you know, has a lot to do with the way in which we pour into our work in the, our guiding premise of why we do the work. Um, so I just want to say uh, thank you to you and, you know, the other really, really wonderful people that I know factually we will remain in, you know, relationship and space with as time moves on. But you were really a a guiding light and a force for me personally in my growth in that area. Um, And so Mm. that's what I would like to add. I appreciate you and the the energy that you utilize to completely create spaces of change and adequate love that is missing in a lot of other arenas. I just want to let you know that I appreciate you for that. Thank you so much. That is incredibly generous. And um, your presence on the campaign and also your daughter Miracle's presence on the campaign were a huge support and encouragement to me. And uh, just seeing the way that you walk in unapologetically centering love in whatever organizing environment you're in um, can be a brave thing to do in like a like a New York political space, you know, it's not a lot of people talking about love up in there. <laughs> so right. I feel really, really grateful for y'all's presence and also trust that we're going to stay connected. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate you. Appreciate you too, Shaniqua. Thank you for stopping in. And listeners, we are going to be diving into conversation with Meg Riley, the Vice President of Campaign Workers Guild, in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor partner. This mini-series is sponsored in part by Groundswell Action Fund. I'm here with their Director of Civic Engagement, Kanita Toffee. We are the largest fund in the country centering women of color-led 501c4 work, giving people an easy way to donate to organizations that are not just talking to voters before an election, but are also engaging voters year-round in the ongoing work of advancing real justice and democracy. We are loving hearing more on the podcast about the important work happening at Groundswell Action Fund and with their amazing grantees. Let's hear from one of those grantees now. Greetings, this is Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter Fund. I'm excited because we've just launched the Black Voters Matter, the South is Rising Tour, where we've been taking the blackest bus in America around the deep South in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida. We're connecting with voters to hear what they're concerned. We're listening to people. We're talking about issues like voter ID laws and voter suppression and felony disenfranchisement. There is a history in the Deep South of resistance and the roots of resistance live in the Deep South, which is why we're doing the South is Rising Tour. So we're asking people to join and join this movement that folks are excited to really be able to share what they're doing, their work and grassroots groups throughout the South that are actually not just to transform, doing work to transform the region, but we know that when we work together, we win. So we are transforming this country, as goes the South, goes the nation. There has never been a more critical time to ensure that women of color have the resources to move the change that is needed in these times. 
Join us and these amazing women by visiting bit.ly forward slash Groundswell Action. We are so grateful to Groundswell Action Fund for their incredible work. Please donate to support them. And you can also help us sustain this project. Healing Justice Podcast has been going for a year now as an all-volunteer project, and we are so deeply committed to keeping this community going. To do that, we need your help to cover the costs. And so you can chip in at patreon.com slash healingjustice to become a monthly sustainer, or click the link in the episode show notes to give a one-time donation. We especially, especially appreciate all of those who are already sustainers and welcome you to join them at patreon.com slash healingjustice. So if you've already been tuning into this election mini-series, you've already heard the first two episodes. Two weeks ago, we talked to Sunrise. Will and Varshney joined us and talked about uh, electoral work and movement work and in what ways those uh, cultures of organizing are in competition and in what ways they can work together. Last week, we heard from Nancy Leeds, the founder of Campaign Sick, and Becca Rast, the campaign manager for Jess King in Pennsylvania. And they both shared about being women campaign managers and creating different culture, uh, transforming and building different kinds of culture in working on electoral campaigns. Highly recommend checking out those episodes. So there's a couple things I want to share about what we're about to hear from Meg Riley, who is a union organizer and vice president of the Campaign Workers Guild. There's a couple things that we didn't get to touch on together that I want to name just because this topic is so near and dear to my heart, having recently gone through the experience, as you just heard Shaniqua and I talk about. And I think for me, the biggest thing that has stuck with me through this experience is that culture shift requires power struggle. I came up through structure-based organizing, incredibly focused and organized around uh, building and taking power as the primary uh, way that we were being trained to move in the world. And I organized in that tradition for like five or six years and developed some really deep habits and have been working for the past five years in healing modalities to undo um, some of those habits, right? And to learn about new and different ways of organizing. And oftentimes when we have conversations about healing or about creating supportive culture in our movements, there's a way in which that feels very far from the real tangible fight and struggle for power that we're carrying out uh, in the public sphere. And I think for me, you know, having experience of, of unionizing and being a member of a union was sort of this meeting of both culture change and enforcement of culture meeting the, the struggle for power and how the cultures that we're building in our workplaces, in our organizations, um, in our movements are not able to survive and be resilient unless we have the means to enforce our values uh, when they're threatened. And they will be threatened, of course. I love how Shaniqua talked about um, we expect that there will be turbulence, right? Of course there will be turbulence and there will be conflict. And so what are the ways in which we can be building power in a healthy way to be able to enforce um, our values when that conflict comes? 
And so I'm hoping that the rest of this conversation can be useful to you, even if you don't work on a political campaign and even if you don't work in in a nonprofit environment. Um, There's a very kind of literal and direct translation to nonprofit culture. Anytime that we're talking about politics, you can probably sub in the word nonprofit uh, in this conversation. But also I know many folks who are listening are service providers and teachers and many might already be members of unions. And so there might be interesting things here that you can use to apply to that experience, right? And there's also a couple myths that I want to name before we dive in to do a little bit of active myth busting because there are a lot of very sneaky, very right-wing misconceptions that I saw in our experience starting to rear their heads um, from people that we were talking to and even from people within the union, right, as we were negotiating some really common myths and uh intentionally misinformed beliefs about our right to organize. So the first thing I want to name is that undocumented people have a right to unionize. Undocumented folks can be members of a union um, and can be protected by unions. And so don't believe anybody who tells you that if you're undocumented, you can't be part of the union. The second one is if you're interested in unionizing your workplace, make sure that you connect with a union to talk through your steps before you begin so that you can set up proper protections and uh, work with some clear steps. There is a way to start in the wrong way. And so make sure that you connect with folks who specifically support people through this process. Um, If you work at a nonprofit that does campaign work or you work on a political campaign, Campaign Workers Guild is a great one to reach out to. Uh, But there are many unions that would be willing to work with you or point you in the right direction at the beginning. So make sure you get that support before you begin. Also, management will use tactics like non-disclosure agreements to try to intimidate you, but working conditions can never be covered in a non-disclosure agreement. So even if you uh, have made a legal commitment to uh, not disclose certain things about your workplace, right? This is super common on campaigns. That's not the same thing as it being illegal for you to disclose your personal experience of your working conditions. And so know that you can't be fully silenced in that way. And then finally, just don't be surprised that people will get quiet about this experience because they are afraid of um, the reputation of organizing their workplace, jeopardizing their careers. Um, That has happened with some of my friends uh, from the campaign that I just worked on, and it's okay. Um, But for those who feel in a position to be able to take some risk, I think it is so important that we keep speaking up and we keep going. If we don't speak up about our experience, then our experience can't help other people and nothing changes. And I personally dream of a world where... uh, having had a role in ensuring workers' rights in your workplace is seen as a qualification and an asset for a future job and not a liability. And so um, for those, you know, many folks who have been organizing around working conditions in whatever place you work, the more that we can talk to one another and build solidarity, the stronger this movement will be and we will raise the standard of um, ending worker exploitation, uh, particularly in the progressive arena. So I invite you to join me and and as is possible for your life, uh, take those risks as well. So here we go, y'all, with 
plenty of introduction. Uh, we're talking to Meg Riley, again, the vice president of Campaign Workers Guild uh, by 24-7 time and also a union organizer for her day job. And Meg is going to tell you a lot more about CWG and the process. So let's dive right in. Here's our conversation. Hey, Meg, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So glad that you're here um, and wondering if you can share a little bit with folks about uh, your role at CWG and what the Campaign Workers Guild is. Sure. So we are a relatively new independent national union for campaign workers. We launched in February of this year of 2018. And I'm the vice president. So we have an elected board that's elected by dues paying membership and um, I'm the vice president of that. So what that entails is a variety of things. I mean, we are a new union, so that's everything from bargaining contracts to organizing coordinated campaigns um, to deciding what our logo should look like. And is it true that everybody until just recently you hired your first staff, everyone involved has been volunteer? Yes, and our first staff is part-time, so it does add some capacity, but the vast majority is all volunteer work. And we are... It's, it's a lot of volunteer work, which is great, but all hands on deck, definitely. Building a union from scratch with no support from an international union, like a big one, um, is, is a big task. There's a, lot, there's a lot to do. Yeah. I mean, I was super impressed. Like, you, you all just supported us at the Cynthia Nixon campaign through a, a fairly turbo but very arduous uh, collective bargaining process. Mm-hmm. And I could not believe the level of support from CWG as a whole. Um, shout out to Ihab and Renee, who supported us specifically. Like the number of hours per week that they put into advocating alongside us and the fact that they're volunteers is so impactful to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Y'all must, really, y'all must really want something here to be we working really that hard. We really want something. And I mean, that's the way that unions should be and originally were is it the workers themselves like in their spare time organizing for their own work sites for their own jobs or or their own colleagues um Mm. the 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 idea of having paid staff isn't a necessary part of of how a union works a union doesn't have to have paid staff so it's like a real a real grassroots authentic way to have the vast majority done by the workers themselves so will you tell me a little bit about your own history? Like, did you come through campaign work and go through some horrible experiences on the job that led you to to want to help start CWG? Or, or what was that story like? There are definitely many people who have had such traumatizing, like truly traumatizing experiences that that's why they're involved. For myself, not so much. Um, my first campaign was Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. I worked as a field organizer in New Hampshire for five or six months, um, and then went across the country doing student organizing. But actually, the Bernie campaign was pretty decent as campaigns go in the sense that we had paid health insurance, um, not at the beginning, but eventually we had one day off a week. Um, You know, we got reimbursements and and gas cards, which are actually unheard of on the majority of campaigns. Um, I mean, it had the the negative effects of campaigns as well. There was no centralized HR. You know, we were working 80-hour weeks, 70, 80-hour weeks. And it was just really exhausting. And at the end of it all, I felt burned out. I felt depressed. I felt exhausted and sad. And like I had been all used up. 
Um, so no truly daunting, terrible experiences for me in terms of like oh, a small horror story, but big picture, spending that many months, 9 a.m. to 9 or 10 p.m. every single night is just, it's just a terrible thing to go through in any context. Totally. I mean, I feel like in most industries, a conversation around, oh, you know, my job actually wasn't that bad. I only had to work 80 hours a week, which is like right. literally double right. a traditional work week, <laughs> um, is already just sort of a metric on the standards of the expectations on campaign workers, right? Is like, oh, we only had to work 80 hours a week. I mean, and that that's even a conversation and that oh, I know. working for one day off a week is actually a significant union fight is kind of yeah. wild. It's still not like a win, but even now, when I look back, I kind of I'm a, I have that little bit of gratitude and apologetic, right? I'm a little apologetic, and I'm like, well, we did we did have one day off a week. Like it's so hard to break this cultural idea, and I remember that I was so confused that everyone there was just that that there were there were going to be no days off. Of course, they don't tell you on the phone. I think it's an assumption that we all know that it's going to be an 80 hour week job. I didn't know that personally, and I know I'm not the only one who doesn't know that when they apply for these jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, and a lot of it for me is like that things are not explicit because yeah. actually if the expectations were to be made explicit, they would they, they would look egregious, right? right. Like exactly. I, I feel like a lot of it gets conveyed in sort of like jokes or shame or side eye, right? Of like you're leaving the office and it's only, you know, seven right. o'clock and yep. pe- like you quickly pick up on the social cues that you, that your entire life belongs to the campaign. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, that's exactly how I learned too. Again, I remember my first couple of days, I didn't really know what to expect, but I learned very quickly. There's that that really toxic mentality that the more you work, the more you're, the more committed you are. Very clear from the start. Absolutely, absolutely the, the side eye that you're talking about. And just as an aside, it's also uh, fairly absurd because, you know, but if you, I'm sure, you know, if you look at the stats of, of worker productivity, what, what is it accomplishing keeping the workers so late? Probably very little. So why do you think campaign work is this way? Like, how did we get here? Good question. There's definitely there's definitely a mentality of urgency, right? That's a huge thing. Is that means to an end, which I despise in any context. But people definitely see it as a means to an end, and they think if we can elect someone who votes, you know, um, we can elect someone who's going to vote no on Kavanaugh, right? The, the impact of having that no vote outweighs having workers working 80 hours a week for less than minimum wage. Um, and so I think it's it's that nasty means to an end mentality, which I guess you can debate back and forth. I personally think that if your end is is achieved by by terrible means, then we probably shouldn't be at the end in the first place. I mean, it kind of spoils the end, doesn't it? Getting assimilated into that culture, what what interrupted that for you, or what gave you the audacity to actually be like, we need to intervene in this? Right, and that, and to believe that we actually could. Part of me being involved in in wanting campaigns to be union is that if if someone were unionized in 2020, a presidential campaign, I would probably take that job. I would be really excited by that prospect. But until there's that option, I don't know that I can put myself through that again. Yeah. And so then, what was the process of getting together with other folks? I mean, I, you mentioned that. Um, CWG is not affiliated with any other international unions, even that decision-making process. Like, how does one start a union? <laughs> Literally got an email from a former 
uh, colleague on Bernie, um, she just emailed me and two other coworkers, former coworkers on Bernie. She just sent an email saying like, hey, do you all want to talk about what a campaign union would look like? And we all said, hell yeah. And so we started setting up conference calls. And so for for the first uh, like six months of CWG, and this was before we officially launched or before anything was official, we would just have a conference call every week talking about what it would look like. And so we started with a letter and that took us like six months to get to that point, getting to an open letter that had essentially what our values are and what our, our beliefs were. And we circulated that letter very quietly for months and months and months to people that we trusted in our network saying, would you sign on to this? We're not going public yet. Um, we want to be able to release it once we have obviously quite a few people. The first pretty much year was spent um, reaching out to the campaign workers we all knew and who they all knew just to build support and see what people thought. And the response was overwhelmingly positive. Like very few people said no to signing the letter and those who did were just concerned about their career. Um, it was it was actually really remarkable and it definitely made us feel like we were on the right path. Cool. And so I'm curious, um, just to sort of set the stage for for what we're fighting for, I know that you already mentioned uh, some of the conditions that you experienced, like super long hours, um, not having access to days off. What are some of the other things now that you've worked with a bunch of different campaigns and in talking to people through circulating that letter? Mm-hmm. What are some of the, the, the sort of worker issues that have consistently come up or some of the more egregious things that you've heard about? Harassment is a huge one. I mean, again, there's this toxic mentality of means to an end. Like if I had creepy volunteers on the campaign, um, I would essentially the mentality is like, yeah, but you need the shifts, right? Or like your numbers are so high as you need to sign up so many camera shifts this weekend. And so, um, and sometimes that's explicit. Sometimes it isn't, but either way, the, the idea is say that can you really risk like telling a volunteer no, or, or shifting turf or, turf or something? And the answer is unfortunately not. Um, so harassment is absolutely everywhere. And that was really, really hard for me. I even, so I left in April and like six months later, I was still getting messages from old volunteers. I had one who was 68, Facebook messaged me that when we worked together on the campaign, um, I reminded him of his daughter and he was sexually attracted to me. And I had another uh, super volunteer messaging me, asking me to to date him and he'd only volunteered because he wanted to date, you know, and this is, this is not unique to just me. It's just like, it's an ongoing icky cultural thing that there's this weird dynamics with volunteers. Um, and again, that is not, that's not just me. So, so that, that can really put you off from going back into a situation where you're essentially in this like customer service role to volunteers where the customer is always right. And you have to meet your quota. Tough thing for a lot of people. And then sexual harassment there's a lot of really powerful people in politics, really, really powerful people. And there's a lot of really powerless people and a lot of people who want to work in politics and, you know, realize that the, the, the field of electoral campaign workers is really, really small because very few people can put themselves through that for a variety of reasons. Um, and so you just deal with a lot of stuff. And like I said, there's no centralized HR. Um, there, there's no one to report anything to, even if you did feel up to reporting, which is rare in and of itself. Um, and so harassers just continue from campaign to campaign. In fact, they climb the ladder because they're almost always white men, right? And so they climb and they climb and they end up being field director here or so on, so on. Um, so sexual harassment is one, probably the one we hear 
you know, it's, it's in the top three of, of issues that people have on campaigns. Um, so that's, that's a big one. On top of that is compensation. So vast majority of campaign workers are, are definitely underpaid, especially when you factor in hours. So they're paid on a monthly basis, on a salary basis, which I'm sure we both know and your listeners know is, is not as great as it seems, actually. It seems like societally we've built up this idea that salaried is preferable to, to hourly for a lot of classes and reasons. Um, what it really means is that your worker can just work you as many hours or your, your boss can work you as many hours as they want and pay you the same amount. So when you factor it in, most campaign workers earn less than minimum, minimum wage. Um, and these are people who often are like driving literally hundreds of miles a week in their turf and not getting uh, any reimbursement. Like not even not even compensation for it, but just reimbursement just for the gas that they're using. Um, and you should never pay to work. You should never have to pay to work. So reimbursement is a huge one. And then lack of health insurance, which is changing somewhat. I think since 2016 and the discussions around Medicare for All and so on, it's definitely changing somewhat, but it is still very common to to not have any health insurance on campaigns. There's this icky assumption that everyone is under 26 and therefore on their parents' health insurance, which has so much included in that strange assumption. I, I still hear that at the bargaining table all the time um, with CWG work that people are on their parents' health insurance, which, you know, what does that say about the parents? Okay, that they're gainfully employed at like generally a, an employer that can provide health insurance. Okay, what does that say about the, you know, like who you're hiring and who you're looking at and who can afford to do this work and and where you're putting your resources as the campaign manager into into big ad buys instead of the very basic health insurance for your workers. So that's kind of, I mean, there, there's so much I could say about the crummy conditions, but those are a couple of the really, really big ones. Mm. I think it's so important for us to just hear these be named because like you were saying with, you know, showing up and getting assimilated into the the assumptions that exist within dominant campaign culture. Like mm-hmm. I think it's also a really critical thing to interrupt those things as assumed necessities or assumed realities, right? Because those conditions are totally all choices. Um, and I think because they're such common choices across the campaign world, uh, folks start to say things like, this is how it is. Um, yep. Folks start to say things like, when you start on a campaign, like the first day that you start, you know, somebody says, oh yeah, I've been you know, really taking good care of myself and I'm really determined to eat well, you know, during this campaign. And somebody else jokes about how like, oh, that's going to be totally impossible. You can kiss that goodbye, right? Like that's sort of like, and you talk about camaraderie and the the camaraderie can be awesome, but like what would it look like for the camaraderie, which we actually developed through through our union fight, right? Um, To be about something other than suffering, (laughs) like common suffering as camaraderie. Um, yep. and I, I'm curious about, I mean, one other thing I want to just shout out in terms of a benefit is like, it's before talking with y'all, I would have had no idea that severance was even yeah. an option for campaign workers. I just totally assumed like, yep, if you lose your primary and of course, after the general, no matter what, like your job just ends at like midnight on election night and good luck. And you worked a billion hours those last few weeks. You definitely had no time to even do your laundry, much less uh, look for your next job, right? And so that was a huge revelation for me was like, oh, severance is actually starting to become more of an expectation in this work. 
because it's a job that's designed to end and it's designed to end like in a very short period of time and people leave right. what they're doing before that to do this. And so I, I really appreciated that process with CWG of just like hearing what's happening in other places and realizing that we could ask for these things. Yeah, and severance is something that we, we've been fighting for and and largely have been successful. And that's also something I'm really excited about too. It's like, I mean, I think there are some people out there who think that because you know from the beginning that it's a temporary job that you don't deserve severance. And um, I mean, obviously that's, I, I could attack that argument from multiple angles, but first and foremost, I don't know, I don't know where those people think that campaign workers are saving money. I mean, when you're already not earning a ton and then you're paying commute costs and not getting reimbursed, I don't know where they think that you're saving up, you know, a month's rent after the campaign. Nobody is really saving money on campaigns, even if you have supporter housing. Um, so yeah, totally. And then what you said about boundaries is so true too. Like, I think that were I to go back to campaigns and I probably will, I I would, you know, set, set boundaries and be better about advocating for myself. And I was a strong, you know, strong personality back on Bernie as well. But still, like, it's really hard to know what can be asked of you and what can't. And so it's really hard on that first day of work to say, like, something to know about me is that um, I'm going to leave work every day at 8 p.m. I'm going to get my work done, but, but you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be staying late. Like that, that takes a lot for a lot of people who, who don't quite know the culture and don't feel comfortable speaking up. And so I think the beauty of the union is that that standard is set and that people are saying it with you and for you instead of you just feeling alone and scared trying to advocate for yourself as a single person. Yeah, it takes the, it takes the, ex, the exposure risk down to move together. And um, I just want to flag too, like I think a huge perpetuation of... Um, unrealistic at best, you know, ultimately exploitative expectations on the job is the fact that when people get acculturated into that environment, then like actually a conversation we had with someone in our bargaining team on the Cynthia campaign was someone who kept saying like, well, some of these things that we're fighting for, this is how it is, right? Like, and so we get older in this work and then we say, well, I had to go through that too. So like, why do y'all think this should be easier? Like I had to like claw my way up, right? And so this thing can happen where there's a logic that experienced folks who are also miserable and suffering are sort of like justifying the suffering Mm -hmm. because they had to go through it. And so a lot of the work we actually had to do was to talk to each other about like, wouldn't you like that to be different? And to just open up a little bit of space of possibility around that. And so... um. There's all these different ways that like the the clinging to the thing that isn't working happens in different ways for different people. It is deeper than just, um, you know, bosses perpetuating it. It's, it's internalized mm-hmm. too. So let's talk about what the bargaining process looks like. Because I know for me, this campaign was the first time I've ever been a member of a union, much less being active in the moment of becoming a unionized workplace and the leadership and, and, and process that that takes. And so can we just walk through like an abbreviated version of, hey, I'm, a, I'm in a work environment that is not working for us. I know I have a couple of friends and coworkers here that agree with me. What do I do now? Mm-hmm. Okay. You're in that work environment. You've like over drinks or whatever said to your coworkers, this totally sucks. We should be getting health insurance. Um, should we maybe unionize? You might not even have had said the word unionized yet, but you know there's like something there. Um, 
if you are a campaign worker or anywhere like related to campaigns, we have a couple of firms. Um, you can reach out to campaignworkersguild.org. If you're in a different work site, I want to shout out, I'm sure not all of your listeners are campaign workers, obviously. And so um, in other work sites, like international unions, like you find your local SEIU or steelworkers or usually the AFL-CIO is a great place to start because they know all of those, those organizations. And you talk to them about what it would look like. Um, so just in case anyone is listening who wants to unionize like their, their print shop or whatever it may be. Um, so which would be the printer's union, by the way. Uh, so that's an easy one. So you reach out and um, the first step is to do essentially signing cards, which a lot of us have heard about. Um, you sign a card that says that you are interested in forming a union. Um, you have to get a majority of your coworkers to sign those cards. And so that in and of itself can be a process, especially depending on the size. And not only the size, but the, um, the geographic makeup of, of the union, for us, we have digital cards and a lot of unions do these days. And so it's as simple as sending around a form. Um, but that card is showing that you are expressing interest in being a member of a union in your workplace. Once you get to a majority of those cards, and most unions ask for a super majority in case people quit in the meantime or, or so on as to change their minds, which unfortunately does sometimes happen. You get to a majority, essentially present that stack of cards to management. Um, whether that's virtually or, or literally, with some type of letter demanding recognition, demanding that they recognize you, the workers, as a bargaining unit. This can go one of two ways. One way, management looks and they, they count the cards and they say, yeah, this is clearly over 50%. Um, this is legit. Okay, we are voluntarily recognizing you as a bargaining unit. In that case, go to the bargaining table. We can get there in a second. What happens? The vast majority of the time in the private sector is that management says, uh, you know, those signatures are fake or you counted wrong or whatever. They don't even really have to have that good of a reason and they can push it to go to an election, which can be a lengthy process. And there's a lot of union busting that can go in the meantime, go on in the meantime. Um, and then the workers in that work site would vote eventually whether or not they wanted to join the union. Um, if that vote passes, then they're recognized as well. With campaign work, we are doing the former voluntary recognition, which is very rare um, because bosses don't like doing that. Um, but obviously we are working with democratic candidates and campaigns and organizations. And so even, and I don't say that to say that then they necessarily have the right values to voluntarily recognize, but they have the pressure, I think, to voluntarily recognize. And they have the pressure to not, you know, be union busting by trying to put it off and, take months and a lot of money and, and, and so on and let people cycle through. If there's high turnover, that can really change the outcome of an election. Um, so anyway, you get to voluntary recognition or recognition. You then elect a bargaining team, which you are on. So the workers, the dues-paying members, elect a bargaining team. Um, that bargaining team talks to the unit and to a rep from, so this might be staff at a different union at CWG, it's like myself, we talk about what we want to propose at the bargaining table, sit down at the bargaining table, um, we propose all types of things, and, and you can speak to this as well. But we say, you know what, every worker should have health insurance, and we all need gas cards, and we all want severance of two weeks' pay after the end of an election. Bargaining, you go back and forth with the management team across the table. That can be quick or it can be very long. Yeah, let's talk um, about that for a second because it can be very long. Yeah. So I want to pause around some of the things that come up in that moment 
because already the steps that you've described, like getting the card signed, going in, you know, we had an experience of all walking into our campaign manager's office together and asking for recognition. She said yes right away. And we were like, oh, that was really easy. And one thing we didn't understand is that that was not the hardest part. (laughs) We were like, great. Everything's like super amenable here, which makes sense because our candidate's platform is incredibly like pro-worker rights, right? And so that's what we expected Mm -hmm. and we got it. And that was pretty cool, right? And and so then you go into the, the bargaining process. And this is where both in the conversations at the bargaining table, like between the bargaining team and management, but then also the conversations that ripple out because there's a lot of decision-making and ongoing organizing that has to happen within the unit as we start to have to make more decisions together, like not just whether we want to have a union, but real specifics of what we would prioritize, what we would compromise on. People move in and move out, right? Like some people start to say, I don't know if I want to be a part of this anymore. What what are some of the common like fractures that you see coming up at this point in the process or some of the common myths that like get in the way? Yeah, so the, a really common one is about tone. So it's, there there are plenty of workers who come in with a, you know, management is going to try to pull the wool over our eyes and we should go in aggressive and like really fierce, um, which when I'm a worker, I'm I'm that way too. Uh, and then there are workers who who say like let's you know why are we starting so aggressively like why are we you know assuming bad faith like let's go in um, and be positive that's a really common one. Um, we also unfortunately do see some fracturing around things like hey it's not super common but you know in any work site like we talked about earlier there, there are there are sometimes folks who think like that's way too much for a field organizer to ask to be paid or I didn't earn that um, or that well, I supervise them and I only earn, that would only make me earn X percent more than them. That doesn't seem right. So sometimes there's a little bit of that. Um, a com, not a super common fracturing, but something that we really watch for is geographically too, between rural and city. So often city workers are more represented on the bargaining team. Um, and so the rural workers who have a totally different work experience feel really left behind and, and or can feel left behind. We haven't really seen this much, but it's something we watch out for is that making sure the rural workers aren't just left behind being like, hey, my turf is four times the size of yours and I have the same numbers. We should we should talk about this. Yeah, I feel like for us, another thing that came up in this process is that when we signed cards, people were just like, yeah, let's do it. And then once we got into process of actual negotiations, we had um, – that's when this thing started bubbling up for some people around like, oh, well, I'm here because I really care about winning and I'm here because I really care about the candidate and like my community really needs this to happen, right? And so this thing starts happening that I think you kind of alluded to earlier of like, well, if you really care and you're really here because we need to win because our family members and ourselves need healthcare yesterday because we need to end mass incarceration because we need to fully fund our schools like all of the incredibly powerful reasons that we show up to this work to begin with suddenly there becomes this conversation around well if we're advocating for ourselves like that's somehow in conflict with us being here for the mm-hmm. right reasons to win this campaign and so that was a huge conversation that we all needed to have and really I felt it too, like grapple with internally. Like mm-hmm. if I'm 
advocating for myself to have a day off, like, what if that one day could have been labor that would have helped us win? Or, you know, how could I possibly get paid a living wage when I know so many people that we're fighting for in this campaign aren't getting paid a living wage, right? So I think some of that self-negotiation started to happen. Is that something that you see a lot? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because that probably is the most common thing is, is that push and pull between not wanting to do anything to hurt, to hurt the candidate's chances, which makes sense, right? And I, I can grapple with that too. Like you don't work for a candidate. Well, some people are, are mercenaries, but generally you don't work for a candidate unless you believe in their cause. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of escalating, right? And like um, the press finding out or going to local allies and saying, hey, like, you, like can you support us at the bargaining table and jeopardizing or what is perceived as jeopardizing the candidate's chances in any way feels scary and and I, I understand the sort of feeling I don't don't know if it's quite guilt or whatever, understand the weight of, of asking for what you're asking for. I think a lot of that frankly is just um, internalized stuff that's benefiting management and they know it. Like whether they put those ideas out there or not, the only person that's really benefiting is management. Especially like, you know what, if workers are asking for something over the top, which we haven't seen, but if you know, you can ask for anything at the bargaining table. If workers decided to to ask for something, you know, being paid fifteen grand a month, sure. Generally, workers have been asking for like three thousand dollars a month minimum for you know, and health insurance, and nobody has asked for a forty-hour work week yet. And so, I think a lot of that is 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 somewhat unfounded in that I don't think that, and, and opinions differ here, but I don't think that you need to to set yourself on fire to keep others warm. You know, I think that it's okay to advocate and say. I think the workers should be paid a living wage. Mm. Um, it doesn't always feel great to everyone, but but again, I think the only people who benefit from from workers not standing for that is is the bosses and the people who are cutting the checks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting progression that I think you know I felt in myself and saw my coworkers go through like right mm-hmm. before my eyes of at the beginning really negotiating some of that and feeling very conflicted. And then at the end, I mean, one thing I'll just say about our campaign, and I'm curious how you see this relating to like national trends, is that once we won, once we settled a contract, first of all, like one of the most healing experiences that I've seen is the way that we all actually shared, we started sharing our concerns. When you talk about the urban and rural workers, like we really didn't know a lot of each other's challenges. And through this process, we got to really share those things and start to look out for each other in a totally different way on a day-to-day basis, not just with management, but in general. Like, how is that going? How's your strategy? Do you have what you need? Can I run you lit, right? Like looking out for each other. And then the other piece was actually sharing in a transparent way how much we were all making was like so transformative because a humongous function of capitalism is worker exploitation based on the shame and privacy that we have around talking about numbers, right? And this is work that, that resource generation does in terms of like organizing people with wealth to give to social justice movements. This is a huge part of why wage gap exists around racial and gender lines is the the socialization and the, the vehicle that capitalism uses to make us feel like for some reason, it's not appropriate for us to talk about what we're being paid. And 
things came to light in that conversation that were really unequal that we were able to rectify through this process. And to be fair, I don't think any of that was like incredibly intentional on behalf of management. I think campaigns are messy and fast and things are happening all over the place just to give like good faith and benefit of the doubt here, right? And so if we can be communicating with each other, we can actually bring those things back to management and check them. And we won raises for people who were getting paid less for the same work. I mean, like that, that mm-hmm. is a collective responsibility. Yeah. 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 Um, it's right. And kind of up until now, we, I've spoken mostly about the, yeah, the nuts and bolts, like reimbursement and so on and sort of contract bargaining. Right. And, and what that looks like, but, but really a union, like the union forms, you know, when you all have all the majority of your cards, like it doesn't form when you, sign your contract and doesn't form when you have your first grievance or, or like there's no official time there that that makes that you a union. Like a union is essentially just a group of coworkers standing together and looking out for one of each other. And, you know, once you work in a union shop, you really do notice that, like you said, that, that tendency to just be alert to what the other person is going through. And, and absolutely. I mean, capitalism and just, I mean, capitalism, especially American capitalism just kind of expect us all to keep our heads down and, and honestly to like fight over the scraps and to just claw over each other, like crabs in a bucket, like tearing each other down to crawl up over each other. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it's a really cool feeling to know that your coworkers care about you. That happens at my job currently right now. Like it doesn't affect them, um, but they will absolutely go to bat for me if I need them to. And they have, and that is a huge culture shift for the vast majority of us who haven't worked in, in campaigns before. So I'm happy that you got to experience that because many people don't, and that's a hard place to be. Mm-hmm. That was a that was a really big takeaway for me out of this process because on on um, season one of this podcast, you know, we talk a lot about movement culture, and we talk about um, like healing and sustainability, and we talk a lot about relationships and support and sort of healing the way that we treat one another in in our movement work. Again, like means to the end, like can the means actually already mm-hmm. be an embodiment of what we're fighting for? Um, mm. And I got to say, like I've, I've had a very pro-worker personal platform. I've worked at a worker center. I've supported undocumented workers to strike and to organize in Wisconsin. And um, until this process like going through it personally for myself, I really didn't understand on a visceral level how much the structural conditions of organizing for workers' rights um, and having a union is is so deeply interrelated with the ability to have healthy organizational culture, to have healthy power mm-hmm. relationships, to build support, like, on a formal level, having the supports of your needs being met and knowing you're being mm-hmm. paid an equal wage and having healthcare and all the things we right. were able to win. And also on an informal level of building those relationships of fighting together in such a way where I too, like by the end of this campaign felt like, wow, I've only been here for two months, but I know exactly who in this office would have my back if I was like targeted and fired unfairly. Um, or if something happened in my personal life, right? And so I feel personally really moved by like the sort of weird mashup of a very us versus them, worker versus management, like knockdown, drag out, power struggle 
Um, and then also like healing, collective, interdependent, we survive together kind of culture that's actually able to supersede individualism. And so this is really complexified for me. Um, the deep importance of the structural realities of, of worker support and workers' rights uh, really playing into like the possibility of the cultures we can create in this work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it goes back to what you said a couple minutes ago too about transparency. Like once you work in a shop or where you have a contract or we've all discussed your salaries, like something changes in the tone I find. Like there's there's just something to that. It's kind of like, well, it's a little bit magical though to all like sit around a table and talk about this is what I earn or this is what my workplace issues are or like these are the realities of what I need to be able to pay my rent or this is the support I need from you all. Like that's, that's a truly like that's true solidarity, right? Standing with each other. And so it's not just a saying that that unionizing benefits everyone. It really does. And especially on campaigns, if you have a team that is that is supportive of each other and building each other up and being conscious of of what divides may exist, like that that doesn't hurt in any way to have a team who is so interconnected and intertwined. Mm-hmm. And Becca Rast, who's a campaign manager in Pennsylvania, and I know is the is the manager of I think the second campaign that CWG unionized. Um, when she came on, she talked about mm-hmm. how even as a manager, um, it was so helpful for her to go through this process because campaigns are pop ups, like they they're little startups that are built not to last, and so she doesn't have an HR person, she doesn't have an HR department, yeah. she doesn't have like a legal department. And so CWG actually made it really easy for her through the bargaining process to develop really clear processes around sexual harassment, around grievances, around pay, around healthcare, right? Like she was, I mean, she's a uniquely supportive manager. I think we can say that, but, um, (laughs) but it was like, actually the union was a huge support to help her set up all of that infrastructure and just know, cool, like I'm going to use this contract as our HR infrastructure now. Um, and campaign managers don't want to be putting their time into that, right? Like they should be putting their time into organizing how we're going to win. Um, and so I, yeah, Mm -hmm. I thought that was like a really great reflection on how a a manager can also really benefit from partnering with workers around like, what do we want to make this workplace look like together? That's funny. I have never thought of it that way. Um, but it makes sense, right? If we work with some coordinated, they've had years to build some sort of employee manual with, with what their benefits are and what the procedures are and a lot of things. Um, and campaigns don't have that at all, like in the slightest. And who's going to, who's going to take the time as a campaign manager to put together like a procedure for if a complaint is, is made against a worker, much less, you know, look at getting a health insurance plan. So yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I think it probably is beneficial and, um, as CWG is growing, I know that there are workers who, who um, you know, are applying to work on unionized campaigns or firms who are saying like, hey, before I accept this offer, can I look at the union contract? You know, or like, oh, I'm applying because this is union. Can I, can I look at the contract? And so it benefits everyone to have that contract, A, exist, but B, also be a strong contract that makes the candidate, the, the you know, potential employee um, excited to work there and, and to decide to move across the country to work there. Mm-hmm. So let's play that out just to close together is like how the overall landscape, both in progressive world and also just the way that politics works, 
um, will change if, if worker culture is dramatically transformed? That's a good question. I think, I mean, this isn't totally what you're, what you're uh, asking, but something I am interested in looking at as this progresses is how the rest of the progressive landscape changes outside of campaigns. So, for example, the, the organizations that endorse candidates, you know, some of them have already started putting on their questionnaires, like, is your campaign unionized? Would you voluntarily recognize if they were? Um, and we've had so many supporters in the progressive world who aren't campaign workers reach out and say, I really support this. I'm doing everything I can at my 501c3 or c4 um, to make this, you know, to, to support CWG and make sure that we we do that as well. So I'm, I'm curious to see what that will look like. Um, we already have a lot of supporters there, but I think that, you know, as we, we both know, like, uh, Democrats court big labor endorsements and big labor endorsements, you know, endorse Democratic candidates and give them money. And so I think that is going to definitely be looked at. I'm excited to see what 2020 looks like in terms of, you know, if big unions endorse uh, candidates who haven't recognized their campaign or have been stalling at the bargaining table or are refusing at the bargaining table to agree to a contract that has, you know, a certain salary floor That'll be interesting. Um, I don't know that it'll change what types of candidates run. And I don't know that I'd be so bold to say that it would change what types of candidates win. And my hope is that it will change where funding is allocated. Right now, we live in a society where everyone wants, everyone wants like the, the, the beautiful campaign video that costs, you know, 20 grand to make and then 100 grand for the ad buy and everything. That's what consultants who come in and, um, you know, consult campaigns, which is a whole separate thing, uh, want is more ad buys. And so I think that we'll, we'll see by necessity a change in, in some of those resources going towards workers. Um, and that's already happening. And, and I think that's important. And I think a lot of the donors, especially small dollar donors, you know, when I donate to campaigns, I would rather the money go towards the workers than, than from, you know, consultant fee. Um, so I think allocation of money as well and I also think just the general conversation, like up until 2016, we, when we first started talking and then we negotiated our last contract, our first contract in December of last year, up until then, it's been a lot of like whisper networks and a lot of an internal discussion on campaigns about what campaigns are like. So I think it's just bringing this out of the shadows and into the open and saying like, this is what campaign workers go through um, in order to get these candidates elected. Some of it is okay. Some of it needs to change. To a certain extent, it's always going to be a stressful job, right? And so having those discussions out in the open and, like you said, talking to your coworkers and, um, and so it's taking a lot of the I out of it and turning it into a we, I think, is a culture shift that's already happening. And, and um, I definitely expect to see more of it as we go on. I mean, there's so many campaigns that, that have gone through this process and already say what you say about it's, it's changed their mentality about looking out for one each other, one of one um, another and and speaking up when things are wrong and understanding the power of the collective versus the power of the individual. And I think that that benefits everyone and we definitely expect us to keep seeing that as we keep going through all of these wild election cycles. Thank you. I know I'm really grateful for the work that y'all are doing to um to really interrupt uh 
the cycle that somehow allows us to work on these issues but not embody what we're fighting for while we're doing it. Like to have mm-hmm. a great platform on worker rights um, and to run each other into the ground as workers. Yeah. Um, and also just the the challenge around um, what we know from from electoral campaigns, what we know from organizing for social justice and direct action, like we need to build power if we want to interrupt the status quo. And we know this from working outside the system and and doing direct actions and applying power to, or applying pressure to our elected officials once they're in office, even when they're amenable to our issues, right? Like even when our candidates are, have great worker rights platforms, even when you know, the decision makers are are friends of community organizations, et cetera. It always takes power and pressure in order to interrupt the the incredible mm-hmm. momentum of a status quo that doesn't work. And so I'm really grateful to the infrastructure that CWG is building. That's a really pragmatic power building infrastructure that allows us to organize ourselves in a way in order to begin to seed a new culture of working. Um, yeah. You know, we can't, um, you know, talking about like broader ways to affect change, you know, electing candidates is all well and good in a short term sort of sense. And it, it sounds like a sexy way to get change, right? Like I said, elect a senator who's going to vote no on Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh you know, like that, that'll big, make a big change. It's actually not necessarily the case. Electoral politics is, is um, not the be all end all for, for ways to affect change. What, what is a way to affect change is to lift up people's material conditions and create solidarity between working class people or middle class people, um, essentially those who aren't, you know, the, the 1%, those who aren't the holders of all, all the cash. Um, you know, I, I truly think that, that we can elect the best candidates in the world and get all these progressives in, in office. But if we aren't having open conversations about what, you know, each of our struggles are, or what our material conditions are, then, then we aren't going to get the change that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Meg, for your leadership, the incredible work that y'all are doing. Um, I encourage folks, we'll share in the show notes the Campaign Workers Guild website uh, where you can become an associate member and support that work uh, that is being led by vast majority volunteers and really young people who are uh, really putting like putting your bodies and your, and your labor into the gears of... Uh, the assumptions of what this work has to look like and challenging us to embody our values in a different way. So thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, thank you very much. And definitely um, if anyone wants to reach out to just to chat about workplace struggles or unionism in general, where we we have conversations with people every day. So I'm excited to hear from people and thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much to Meg Riley of CWG and Shaniqua Charles, an organizer here in the Bronx, for joining us today, as well as our sponsor, Groundswell Action Fund, who is resourcing visionary political organizing led by women of color, low-income women, and transgender people across the country. We have two more episodes in this series, so there is still time to share it with your friends. Next week, we are hearing from uh, Black women and Black trans women who are candidates, have been candidates, recruit candidates, and they're giving us the tell-all inside of that process. And then the following week, we will be talking to you the day after the election, 
hearing from incredible leaders like the National Director of the Working Families Party, Maurice Mitchell, uh, movement elder and incredible leader, Barbara Dudley, and a prolific young leader, Alexandra Rojas, who is the Executive Director of Justice Democrats. So they are going to be helping us process uh, all of the feelings that come up the morning after the election. Uh, So looking forward to sharing that episode with you on November 7th. Join our email list to stay in touch with us and get election survival tips sent right to your inbox. You can find it at healingjustice.org slash elections. This past week, we sent out an email with tips of how to plan for self-care in the sprint. So if you're working on a campaign related to the election or a different kind of issue-based campaign or just having a stressful time at work, Um, some practical self-care tips that you can plan for ahead of time to take care of yourself in those sprint moments. If you want to receive tips like that in your email, again, healingjustice.org slash elections. You can also see a list of our upcoming episodes and guests listed there and interact with us on social media. You just heard us talk at you a lot. We would love to hear you talk back. Let us know what stood out to you. Um, We post quotes from our incredible guests on our Instagram at Healing Justice, Twitter, HJ Podcast, and on Facebook, Healing Justice Podcast. We'd love to hear from you um, how this work, these conversations are moving you and impacting you. Yeah. Um, would love to add your perspective to the mix. And finally, we want to thank the many people who contributed to this episode. Thank you as always to our sound designer, Zach Meyer at the Cole Room. Thank you to Josiah Warning for visuals. And thank you to Sonia Hansen for your incredible editing and Park Ballantyne and Guido Giorgenti for production support over the whole series. We're sending y'all out today on a song that was written as a unionization song. Um, It is very silly and we hope you enjoy it because power struggle, although it can be intense, can also be really fun. Hear you next week, y'all.